0: And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, I'll be reading this morning, verses 21 through 28. Hear and attend now to the word of the Lord. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. I wonder if you've ever heard of the famous marshmallow experiment that's been done over the past few decades. They, they took a group of children uh, and put them in a room and uh, put a marshmallow out on the table and they said, "You can eat this marshmallow if you, if you want but I'm going to leave the room and when I come back, I'll have another marshmallow. And if you don't eat that marshmallow, you can then eat both marshmallows. But if I come back and that marshmallow has gone, then you know, I eat this one. I did once hear a kid say, well, I'd eat marshmallow and blame it on somebody else. What's interesting about it, though, because you know, some kids instantly just grab the marshmallow. Others resisted the urge and waited and got their two marshmallows. But what was really fascinating about the experiment was they didn't just leave it there. They tracked these kids for decades, decades, to see if there was any difference between the one marshmallow crowd and the two marshmallow crowd. And they found an amazing distinction between them, that the kids who, who were willing to wait for the greater reward generally did better in life. They had learned to, to wait and be patient and, and discipline themselves and hold off and, and, and receive a greater benefit for a smaller sacrifice in the short term, whereas the kids that grabbed the one marshmallow tended to do that throughout their life and just go for the easy satisfaction. But it's not easy to wait for something. It's, it's not easy to live in a reality that, for now at least, feels disappointing and unfulfilling, Especially in an age where, where we've grown used to getting everything we want almost instantly. I mean, seriously, think of the, the internet speeds you were dealing with 15 years ago. And, and what you deal with now. And how if you had to put up with that now, you'd move houses to get a better internet speed, wouldn't you? Some of you. Most of you, perhaps. Especially those at home right now watching online. <laughs> But God calls us to wait. He promises victory for His kingdom. He promises vindication for His people. He promises triumph over sin and death even. In a word, He promises us glory. But He tells us in no uncertain terms that we have to wait for that day. Be strong, take heart, and wait. The Christian is promised glory, but it is a glory deferred. We may like to defer our taxes or other things that we don't want, but glory and vindication and joy are not things we want to put off. They're not things we want to defer and and experience at a later time. And he gives us an example as a pattern of that. Jesus, who deserved all the glory that creation could give, came humbly to earth, even as we confessed in our confession of faith this morning, though the form of God took on the form of a servant and experienced the humiliations of his life on earth, including and finally his humiliating death. And all of that before he could finally receive the glory that he was due. To follow him, yes, is to receive for yourself as well the promise of vindication, the promise of victory, the promise of glory. But to receive those things at the right time We have to wait. And until then, much like our Savior, we have to walk a very different path. It's not a straight shot of celebration and glory the whole way. And that's hard to do. That's a hard path to walk. So as we're going to see in these verses, what Jesus tells those anyone who would follow Him, if we wish to receive the glory that is put off, the glory that awaits, the glory deferred, we need to accept His plan. We need to follow His path, and we need to trust His promises. In order to see how it's difficult to accept his plan, we have to look at the context. We looked last week, Randy led us through the, the previous verses, and we saw that, that Jesus asked Peter, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, yes, God showed you that, Peter, and you will be the foundation of the church that I'm going to build. And death itself is not going to be victorious over that church that I'm going to build on that foundation. And you, my disciples, you will have the very keys of the kingdom. That's good news, right? That's victory. That is worth celebrating, is it not? Okay, Um, death itself is not going to have victory. And we will experience that, amen? Amen? thank you, thank you. Because if you don't understand how cool that is, then then Peter's reaction isn't going to make sense in the context. Jesus is saying, look, we're going to win. Not only are we going to win, you're going to be a part of it. And it's not going to be a small thing. It's going to be death itself. Hell itself cannot stand against this. And then immediately after that, Jesus says in verse 21 that he's going to Show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus, we were up here just a minute ago. This is where we were celebrating the awesome things that are going to happen. And now you're saying you're going to have to die, Jesus? No. Now the most startling phrase about what Jesus said should have been that last one, that on the third day he was going to rise from the dead. But that's not what Peter and the disciples kind of Zoomed in on. That's not not what they focused on. They heard that Jesus was saying he was going to suffer and be killed. And if he was going to be killed, what was going to become of, of all these hopes that they have? You see, that's the opposite of what they want to see happen. He just spoke of victory over death, and now he's going to suffer and die. It's no wonder that Peter then jumps in. He's like, no, no, no. Jesus, get on message. Okay, stick with it. Verse verse 22, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Stop talking this way. This shall never happen to you. What Peter had missed is one key word in verse 21. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Jesus wasn't merely predicting. He wasn't just saying, guys, I can see the way things are going and I know what's going to happen. You know like how you see... uh, Something bad about to happen, but you're powerless to stop it. This happened to me just yesterday. Uh, one of them, My kids were out riding their scooters, and one of them's a, a bit of a daredevil. And despite being told many, many times not to zoom down the driveway into the... Don't worry, it's, it's not a really bad story. Uh, despite being told not to zoom down the driveway and into the street, uh, one of them decided that they wanted to do that anyway, in between two narrowly parked vehicles. And I could see from her trajectory... That she was going to go face first into my rearview mirror, but I couldn't stop it. You know, I saw, she was fine, by the way. I I forgot to mention that in the first service. (laughs) She's fine, she brushed it off, she's okay. But, you know, face first and wiped out, but I'm just standing there watching the whole thing coming and I can't stop it. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not saying, guys, look, I can see the way things are going, the Pharisees are opposing me, you know, the crowds are talking about kings, the Romans are going to execute me. there's nothing we can do. This is what's going to happen. No, it's, it's, not like, it's not like that. He's not just predicting. He's not saying, oh, something bad's going to happen, but don't worry. My heavenly Father's going to sort it out. He's going to find a way to fix this thing that we can't stop from happening. It's not what he's doing. He's saying, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. He must do it. It's like in, uh, in Luke 24. If you remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he, he encountered two of his disciples. And they were talking to each other just about the disappointment of the fact that Jesus had died. And they heard rumors of his resurrection, but they didn't know what this meant for all their hopes because he died. He was supposed to save them and he died. And they're telling this to Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Jesus predicting His death wasn't just looking ahead, oh, I see where this is going, I can't stop it. No, the prophets predicted it. It was necessary. It had to happen. We are eager to see the glory of the kingdom of God, the victory of His people, the defeat of Satan and the power of evil at work in the world. And that day of glory will come But because of sin, there can be no glory until the power of sin is defeated. And the ultimate fruit of sin, which is death, has to be removed. Not until then can the kingdom be victorious. And so it is necessary that the plan of God for salvation go through the cross. He must go to the cross and suffer. You see, Satan had already offered a shortcut. In, uh, when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, we saw in Matthew four, verses eight and nine, it says, "The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the, showed Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory." And he said to them to him, "All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me." That was the temptation. And, and Satan indeed had the power to give them away. But if he had given Jesus the glory of the kingdoms at that time, it would have been a fallen glory. It would have been kingdoms still tainted by sin, still under the power and dominion of death. And that is no glory. And so there can be no shortcut in the plan of God. It has to go through the cross. The world wants a kingdom without a cross, a kingdom that doesn't come with sacrifice. Jesus recognizes the source of that temptation. So when Peter objects and says, no, Lord, there's going to be no suffering, no cross, only victory for you. He replies in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. That's where this temptation comes from. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. God's ways are not our ways, brothers and sisters. We have an idea of what victory should be like. What it should look like. The kind of success that we should have. The kind of achievement we should experience. The kind of happiness we should have in our everyday life. The kind of security that we should feel. That's what the victory of God should look like according to the things of man. It makes about as much sense to tell God how to do His job as it would if if you or I, none of us to my knowledge brain surgeons, were going into neurosurgery and, and said, hold on, hold on. Let me tell you what I think you need to do here before you start. It doesn't make sense. The surgeon knows what he's doing. We don't. God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't get to tell God, no, 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 you can't do it that way. He knows how it has to be. We have to accept His plan. God's ways require a different road, a sacrifice, a cross. And His ways require what might look like to us, what looked like to Peter, as failure, as foolishness in the eyes of the world. So when it comes down to it, the question for me and you today is that when God's way and plan seems foolish by the world's standards, which way will you choose? When Jesus says to do something that will entail difficulty and suffering, maybe even rejection, and a a delay on the happiness and glory that you desire and believe that God has promised, will you accept God's wisdom in that? Or will you keep in mind the things of man? Bear in mind his glory will not be delayed forever in verse 28 he assures his disciples that some of them most of them actually will indeed see it with their own eyes he says truly i say to you there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom the kingdom of god after after the resurrection of jesus began to exert its power in the world and across the nations they got to see the beginnings of that if not the fullness But to get to that, it had to go through a road that they did not want to take. The wisdom of God requires a hard and unexpected path to get to the things He's promised. And we are called to accept His plan. But we're also called to follow the path, follow His path. What Jesus goes on to explain in the next verses is that choosing God's way over your own way, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just how you become a Christian. And then everything after that is nice and easy. Choosing God's way over your way is the lifelong characteristic of being a disciple. He describes it like this in verse 24. If anyone expects to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's not describing how to become a disciple. He's describing what it looks like throughout your life to be a disciple. It may seem like he's describing three different things, but really, as we look closer, all three of those are describing the same thing. We, if we want to follow Jesus, we need to deny ourselves, we need to take up our cross, and we need to follow him. All three of those are one and the same thing. To deny someone is to not acknowledge them, to reject them. to Say, I want nothing to do with you. To, to not listen to them, maybe even to act like you don't know them. Teenagers do this very well when mom and dad are nearby. How dare they say hi to me in front of my friends? They tried to tell me that they loved me in front of other people. And so what do we do? Naturally, I don't know them. We just ignore them. We turn. We pretend we don't know that person. That's what it means to deny something. That's how Peter denied Jesus before his death. I, I don't know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. It wasn't me. But what does it mean to deny yourself? We know what it means to deny someone else. It's kind of rude, but it's easy enough to, to imagine. But how do you deny your very self? It, it, Paul gives us a look at it in Galatians 2.20. He says, I, myself, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in this flesh and the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In other words, Paul's saying, look, the me that controlled my life is not in control anymore. I am not the Lord of my body. I'm not the Lord of my time. I'm not the Lord of my money. I'm not the Lord of my words. I deny myself the right to determine how I should live, what I should value, what I should work for, I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm not trying to make me look good. I'm not trying to get people impressed with me. I'm not building a world around me. I die. And so I deny me. And in place of me, I put Christ at the center of things. Which is actually very freeing. Because the way we do things isn't best. This is what the Proverb is getting at in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean, Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. That's that idea. Deny yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. Deny that. Say, my way doesn't work. Instead, take up your cross and follow Him. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. But in case it's not clear enough to deny yourself, Jesus says, take up your cross. Which could only mean one thing to Jesus' audience. A condemned person going to death under the Roman government, condemned to crucifixion, would be required to carry at least one of the beams of their cross to their place of execution. It wasn't because they didn't have other people who could carry it. It was public shame. Public declaration. This person is going to die. Do you think a person in that position is making plans for the future? you think a person like that is taking some steps to manage their stock portfolio while they're carrying their cross? Selfies, make sure I get likes on this. No, a person going to die doesn't think about what's happening after. They're not accommodating their future plans because there are no future plans. That's what it means to take up a cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the call of discipleship. Come and die. Your life as you planned it, your life as you intend it, your life as you dream it to be, ends when you come to Christ. And you leave that point of of self-sacrifice living for something else. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, verse 1, present your bodies as living sacrifices a great word for it, sacrifice, but not just a sacrifice that gives up your own life, a sacrifice that goes on living and allows your life to be used for another purpose. But what does that mean? I mean, it's it's one thing to talk about in vague terms, in spiritual sounding language, yes, I've been crucified, yes, Christ lives in me, yes, I've denied myself, but it's easy to talk like that. What does it look like? How do we do that? I think the Apostle John is very helpful here. In, in 1 John 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down His life for us. And, therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for, for the people of God. So, he's saying, look, we, to deny yourself and to take up your cross is to do exactly what Jesus did, to lay down your life for others. But what does that look like? He tells us in the next verse. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He put those two verses together. What's love? Love is, well, Jesus tells us what love is, laying down your life. And he said, now you go and lay down your life for one another. What's that mean? Well, if you see somebody in need, and you don't respond to that need and give what you can, give of your time, give of your words, give of your wisdom, give of your money, whatever you have, to help your brother or sister in need, you're not laying down your life for them. You've not taken up your cross. You're still trying to run the show. Taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following after Jesus, these are not empty, spiritual-sounding words that we say. They are very real and concrete things that we do. It is a way of living that sets aside permanently our personal agendas and plans in order to be a sacrifice. We take our pride in ourselves and we put it on the cross. We take our dreams and our comfort and we put that on the cross. We take our reputation and our worries about what other people will think and our desire to be respected and revered and we put that on the cross. We take the American dream about what life should be like and the good life that we want to live and we put that on the cross and we say, that's over. And now I I, I follow Jesus and I see what He would want me to do. If anyone wants to follow after Him, let Him take up His cross and follow What a bummer of a message so far. If I'm going to be honest, It's a lot of sacrifice. It's a lot of saying no. It's a lot of feeling like I'm not good enough. It's only a bummer if we stop there. And so we won't because Jesus doesn't stop there. We saw that Jesus' journey to the cross was never intended to end at the cross or even at the grave. His journey to the cross was the path that he had to take to the glory that God had promised and called him to. The whole purpose was the victory of God's kingdom. And though that path leads through death, it ends in glory. A glory deferred, but no less certain. And the same is true for us as it is for Jesus. In verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We trust his promises. We accept his plan. We follow his path. Now we trust his promises to us after telling his disciples that he had to die, that he had to be killed, and that they too, if they have any intention of following him, need to take the same path of sacrifice. He says that in reality, that path is the only way that you will actually experience life. The only way that you will experience the joy, the happiness, the fulfillment that you want. I'm reminded of this every time I go to the beach. We just went recently with the kids. Um, You know, we go and we... It's too cold to go in the water lately, but we like to build things in the sand. You build a castle, you build a wall, you build whatever you want with the sand. Knowing that sooner or later, what's going to happen to whatever you built in the sand? You sound like you don't know what life in Florida is like. What's going to happen to anything you build in the sand? I hear multiple answers, and that's true. It's either going to get washed away by the water, the wind's going to blow it over, Somebody's unintentionally going to step on it. Somebody's intentionally going to step on it. Whatever you build in the sand is not going to last, right? And that, thank you. And that's not just true of the little sand castles that I'm equipped to build, but even, have you ever seen the pictures of the amazing sand art that people put up there? The giant fortresses and castles, the beautiful you know, tortoises or whatever statues they make all out of sand? They are not permanent. The wind, the water, time, annoying siblings. Someone will destroy it. It will not last. What Jesus is saying is, whatever you are doing, whatever you are building, whatever you are making in this life, it's a sandcastle. It's not going to last. Psalm 127 tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You are building a temporary kingdom so he warns his disciples not to exert their effort trying to make something that won't last verse 26 what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world if he builds the most beautiful sandcastle of all and forfeits his soul what shall a man give in return for his soul In other words, why fight and labor and strive and sacrifice and give up everything that you are and devote all your energy to building the nicest sandcastle on the beach? You know, losing your own home because you're spending all your time building this. Losing your relationships, losing everything you have because you put everything into building this one thing that's just going to wash away. Picture in your mind the ladder of success. What does it look like? to climb and reach the top of the ladder of success. What is at the top? What do you have to do to get to the top of that ladder? Now, what does it matter if you reach the top of that ladder and it's leaning against the wrong wall? What if you have worked so hard to get to the top and it's taking you to the wrong place? That's what he's warning us. He says, what do you profit? If you you get to the top of that and you've lost everything, Because you're going the wrong way. The most important thing you can do in life is make sure that everything you're giving for, everything you're striving towards, is is pointed in the right direction. And so in verse 27, Jesus says and promises, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father and He will repay each person according to what He has done. That's not just a promise that He will judge those who have done evil. There will also be reward for those who have followed Him. The world offers temporary rewards, money, popularity, physical comfort, sandcastles, all of them. But the rewards that are worth working for, the glory that will last and endure, is that which Jesus gives. It's not wrong as a Christian to be motivated by reward, to be excited by that, the thought of getting something, as long as it's the right reward. As long as you're chasing the right prize. And so he ends with another promise, verse 28, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The disciples themselves would see these things begin to take shape. They would see the kingdom of God, that goal for which they were sacrificing, that thing for which they labored, that assurance of glory and reward, that hope that every sacrifice would be worth. They would get to see that begin. Your hope is not just pie in the sky by and by that someday you'll go to heaven and everything will be fine. We actually get to see the kingdom of God becoming reality in us and among us. We see it take shape, healing what is broken in our own lives and in our communities. We see it restoring what is lost. We see it reshaping what has been distorted by sin. We see the kingdom of God releasing prisoners from bondage. The Son of Man, Jesus bringing His kingdom in the lives of His people. As we see that, we are reminded that this is worth sacrificing for. This is the promise that is put before us. This is what makes taking up our cross something we want to do. The message of the Gospel might seem obvious in these verses. If I ask you to look at these, this passage we've just read and ask you, where is the Gospel? Your eyes are probably first drawn to, yes, Jesus would go and die and be raised to life and everyone who follows him will live. And that's true. Amen? Amen. And that's good. But there's more. There's more to the gospel than that in this passage. Jesus reminds us that when we take up our cross and follow him, we're not forging our own path, but we're following in his footsteps. We've gone the path that he has already laid before us. And his path did not end at the cross. His path went all the way through to victory, and so he calls us to deny ourselves, and he gives us the power to do it. You know, every other belief system calls for some form of denial, giving something up, sacrificing something. Buddhism says deny yourself uh, your desires because your desires are an illusion, and even you are an illusion. So there's no self to deny. Okay, you know, fundamentalist. Religion will say, you know, deny yourself these things because if you don't, God is going to punish you. Some of us were raised in that environment of we take up our cross and deny ourselves and say no to things because we're scared of what's going to happen if we don't. There's any other reason for denying ourselves, but none of them give you the power to do what they demand. But the gospel gives you the power to do it. How? How? How does the gospel give you the power to do these things? I want you to think of it this way. If you were to, to um, sorry, I've got the beach on my mind. Um, if you were to go up to a child playing with toys in their bedroom and having a great time and say, hey, uh, uh, put that down. Stop doing that. Come over here and help me carry these heavy bags. They're not going to be too excited to help you, probably, unless you've got wonderful, wonderful kids. You know, no thank you, I'm just fine playing here and I do not wish to carry your heavy, heavy bag. But to many of us, that's what the call sounds like. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. and Follow me. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. If you were to instead go to the child and say, hey, whatever you're doing, put it down. And help me carry this stuff out to the car, because we're going to the beach today. They'll respond a lot quicker, won't they? Sure, I'll carry whatever you want. Can I carry more, please? Can I get us there faster? That's what the call to carry your cross is. Because the cross is not just a burdensome, sad thing. It is instead your entrance to the new and better life that God has called you to and promised to you. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, it's not a, all right, all right. Things are going to get bad here. It's a, hey, we're going somewhere awesome and this is how we're going to get there. Take up your cross. Follow me. Because the glory that has been promised is this way. And I will take you there. So pray with me this morning by the Spirit of God. We would be encouraged and equipped and enabled and delighted to take up our cross and follow Him into glory. We pray to you, Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, Thanking you that by your Spirit we will not just be hearers of this word, but doers of your word. We pray that you would strengthen us, equip us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to see the needs of the world, of your people, of your kingdom, and respond. to to let go of whatever ambitions, whatever plans, whatever visions had enraptured us, may we let go of those things and instead be captured in our hearts and minds by what You've called us to. By Your truly great promises that are far better than anything we could have imagined. And though Your plan is not what we would have considered and designed, and though Your path that You call us to is not easy, You equip us for these things. And assure us that it will be more than worth it. Incomparably so. Give us this vision of these great things. May we be motivated and moved by them. In faith and in joy we pray. In the name of our victorious King. Amen.